0: I think the the stigma is really born from a lack of understanding. I think when you talk about a brain disorder, people often think more of the psychiatric side of things and don't always understand that there are also these other disorders like Alzheimer's disease, like epilepsy like multiple sclerosis like parkinson's disease for example and Often many of these diseases are invisible. I saw that when I started to work with the Migraine Association in Ireland, for example, because you know, when people have a migraine attack, they will go into a darkened room and they will wait for it to pass. And that might last, you know, two or three days in some cases. So when they come back to work or when they go to visit their doctor, or when they go shopping or meet their friends they are in the same situation as everybody else. People don't see them for the most part when they're ill. And so you will often find that, you know, work colleagues, for example, employers will think, well, she's well when she's here. Why is it that, you know, for two days every month or for two days every week, she's unable to come and participate? And so I think that's sometimes part of the problem, and we need to raise more awareness
1: Hi, everybody. Here it is Kim and Alessia from the Brain Health Podcast. I'm Alessia Covello, Italian as much as my accent. I work with IT systems for pharma companies and for healthcare providers. And to make you understand, for example, I help validating systems that are used in the laboratories. But I've also been working and caring for people with brain differences, such as people with autism and ADHD. And here with me, conducting the podcast, I have Kim.
2: Hey, hello, everybody. This is Kim. A yeah, quick introduction in my daily life outside the podcast. I'm the CEO and co-founder of a company called Brain Plus, And what we work with is digital therapeutics, more specifically apps and games for recovering from brain injury or psychiatric disorders that have caused brain damage. So that's me. And we have a very special guest today. Donna Walsh.
1: Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for being with us today. You know, we really wanted to have an interview with you because we wanted to look at brain health from the point of view of people who suffer from neurological disorders. And we believe, Donna, that you can help us. For the listeners, Donna is the executive director of EFNA, which is the umbrella organization of patient associations who are representing neurological disorders. Therefore, associations where patients are members as well. But maybe, Donna, you would like to introduce yourself.
0: Yeah, so as you said, Alessia, I work as executive director at the European Federation of Neurological Associations. Um, I started working in patient advocacy a long time ago, as soon as I left university. Um, my studies had been in the area of journalism, but when I left university, I quickly realized that you know I wasn't brave enough to be that person with the microphone chasing people down the street and sort of thought okay I need to have a think about a change of direction in terms of career path here so I looked into sort of working more from a communications perspective and got my first job in Ireland working with the Migraine Association of Ireland and it was really there that I got my first taste of patient advocacy because I myself don't live um, with a brain disorder with any type of disorder thankfully Um, But there I really saw the impact that these types of misunderstood disorders can have on patients and then started to work more with the Neurological Alliance in Ireland and also moving into the European space. I did some work with the European Headache Alliance for a number of years before I started to work with EFNA. So it it wasn't a pre-planned path that drove me into this field, but it was really by chance and something I think that's really added a lot um, to the work that I've been doing over a number of years.
1: And what would you say is keeping you working for EFNA? What is exciting for you?
0: I think it's really inspiring. You know, sometimes people say to you, my goodness, it must be so depressing working with people who are living with these long-term chronic conditions. But actually, it's the complete opposite because often you're working with people who, despite the fact they have a chronic, long-term debilitating condition, are getting out there, are trying to make a difference, are trying to make a change... And it's something I think when you get involved in it, it's very hard to move yourself in a different direction because it can be, as I say, so inspiring to work with people who are driven and motivated in that way.
2: And maybe just a clarification for the audience, what what is patient advocacy? What do we mean by that word advocacy?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's very different depending on the disease area that you're working in and depending on whether you're working at a national level or like me at a pan-European level. Often, patient organisations at a national level will be, I suppose, providing information and support to individual patients that are affected by whatever disorder it might be. But alongside that, they will often have, I suppose, an advocacy work where they are trying to raise awareness of the impact and the burden of these diseases to key audiences. So people like policy and decision makers to the general public, for example, to those ordering priorities in the different countries and trying, I suppose, to bring about change in terms of the way that healthcare is delivered to that particular population in terms of the resources that are allocated to that particular disease area. In different disease areas, I guess the emphasis is different depending on how well understood a specific disorder is in terms of where the political will actually lies. And I think in neurology, it's a real challenge for us because I don't think we're at that point um, like diseases such as cancer, where we are you know, very well known, where the impact and the burden is very well understood. And there's still a real stigma there that I think we need to work together to break down.
2: Okay, so so to summarize, advocacy is a lot about creating awareness in a number of different groups, ensuring that it, the neurological disorders is getting the right amount of attention, understanding, and resources, basically. That that would be like a, a brief summary of what you said. But I think we'll just get much more into the understanding of advocacy once we ex- understand what it is that EFNA is working with. So so maybe you can tell us a little bit more about EFNA. What, what is your what is the role of EFNA?
1: And also, what are the kind of associations that you are currently representing?
0: Yeah, so as you said earlier, we represent a large number of diseases within the neurology space. So they include organizations like the European Multiple Sclerosis Platform, Stroke Alliance for Europe, the Parkinson's Disease Association, brain tumor, Huntington's disease, ataxia, you know, quite a wide range of very common, very well-known diseases, and then some of the rarer, lesser-known diseases. And I think, you know, the reason why EFNA was set up as an umbrella for all of these pan-European and often international groups is because so many of the issues faced by patients living with a neurological disorder are cross-cutting. So even though you might have epilepsy or you might have Parkinson's or you might have multiple sclerosis or you might have Alzheimer's disease, often things you know like stigma, which I mentioned earlier, applies across the board. And so an organization like EFNA, I think, is set up to try to address those cross-cutting issues, leaving the individual disease areas to actually do their own work and focus more narrowly on the specifics within their disease areas
2: that's that's great, so maybe maybe we can dive right into some of these cross cutting issues actually, and uh, maybe you start with stigma as you mentioned. Can you unfold that a little bit more what What does that mean that there's stigma around this?
0: yeah, I think the the stigma is really born from a lack of understanding um I think when you talk about a brain disorder, people often think more of the psychiatric side of things and don't always understand that there are also these other disorders like Alzheimer's disease, like epilepsy, like multiple sclerosis, like Parkinson's disease, for example. And often many of these diseases are invisible. So it's not like somebody who has a physical ailment where you can look at that person and you can understand immediately the impact and the burden that their physical ailment has on them as a person. If you're living, for example, with multiple sclerosis, there are long periods of time where you are completely well. And there are other periods of time where you have a relapse and are very unwell. But the types of symptoms that manifest are often fatigue, their pain, the inability to concentrate at work. And those sort of things are very hard to actually communicate with people because they're not visible to the eye. And so I think, that's sometimes part of the problem, and we need to raise more awareness, first of all, of the fact that these disorders are all connected. So, you know, it's not a fragmented group. And also the fact that many of the symptoms that are caused by these disorders are not always visible to the naked eye.
1: And also, sometimes, uh, I guess, when it comes to stigma and uh, some. Symptoms like uh, fatigue or um, to work, uh, difficulty to work and focus maybe could be associated to laziness, for example, creating a very difficult uh, life for people who are working because um, it becomes difficult for them to in- integrate and even more to share their condition.
0: Absolutely. And I saw that when I started to work with the migraine association in Ireland, for example, because, you know, when people have a migraine attack, they will go into a darkened room and they will wait for it to pass. And that might last, you know, two or three days in some cases. So when they come back to work or when they go to visit their doctor, or when they go shopping or meet their friends, they are in the same situation as everybody else. People don't see them for the most part when they're ill. And so you will often find that, you know, work colleagues, for example, employers will think, well, she's well when she's here. Why is it that, you know, for two days every month or for two days every week, she's unable to come and participate? So I think that's really something that we need to address. It's a conversation that needs to be had, and it's a conversation that maybe needs to be a little bit more targeted to the key players, like the employers' bodies, for example, that are involved in engaging with these people on a daily basis.
1: And maybe, Donna, maybe you want to try to tell us how common uh, and how close to us are these neurological uh, diseases and what is the burden to the society? I guess that these elements are then important for communicating to the different stakeholders that this is a relevant um, uh, topic to be discussed.
0: Absolutely. I mean, the current figures would suggest that one in three people will have a brain disorder at some point during their life. Um, And actually, there is going to be a release of the updated global burden of disease in the coming months. And it looks like that number is growing. And as our population ages, unless we do something now to try and stop the trajectory, we will see more and more people living longer and being diagnosed with some of these neurological disorders like Alzheimer's disease, like Parkinson's disease and so on. So it's really huge. Um, And also in terms of cost, I think the European Brain Council have done some really good work um, in the past on trying to work out the cost of brain disorders to society and their figures are suggesting that almost 800 billion euros per year are being spent on the treatment of brain disorders. The problem is that 40% of that figure is actually allocated to indirect costs. So it's not direct healthcare costs like hospitalisation, like medicines, for example, but more the fact that people are not productive in the workplace, people are absent from work, the need for carers to look after people living with these chronic long-term conditions and often those indirect costs aren't taken into account when policymakers and decision makers are trying to allocate resources. And that's a real issue that we face in the field of brain disorders. And the other problem, I guess, is that, you know, this is not just a healthcare problem. This is a socioeconomic problem. And in most ministries for health in the various member states across Europe and at the European level, the different departments work in silos and, you know, money spent in one area. Is often, you know, recouped in another area, and we need to break that down. We need to look more holistically at these issues and realize that this is not just a healthcare issue. This is much broader than that. Thank you very much, Donna. It, it definitely now
1: gives you a better understanding. Okay, what is the patient association and how common um, the issue is? You said one every three persons has or will uh, have a. Uh, a brain disorders uh, disorder of any kind but maybe we want to look look back uh, to efna and look into the vision of uh, of your association could you could you maybe elaborate on that what is efna
2: trying to achieve
0: So for us, I mean, our main vision is a better quality of life for people in Europe living with a brain disorder. Um, You know, obviously, we would love that these things didn't happen in the first place. Obviously, we would love if there were a cure on the shelf for anyone who was diagnosed with a neurological disorder. But at the moment, I think realistically, what we want to see is that people living with one of these neurological disorders has the best quality of life possible. And I think that's really important because, as I've said, these disorders are often chronic, which means you don't get multiple sclerosis today and you're cured tomorrow or you're cured in three months or you're cured in six months. You are probably going to live with one of these diseases for the rest of your life. And so there needs to be a real focus on trying to maintain that quality of life over as long a period as possible. The other issue, I think, with these disorders is that they're often fluctuating in nature. I spoke about multiple sclerosis earlier. I spoke about migraine. So there are times when you are well, there are are times when you are unwell. So it is more difficult for policymakers and decision makers to actually operate in that context because there needs to be a huge degree of flexibility out there to enable us to think about how we can treat and manage these disorders.
1: What do you mean exactly? How how fluctuation uh, require different treatment? That's pretty interesting, to be honest, to understand.
0: Yeah, so I think in terms of you know people, for example, who have a physical disability. So if I'm using a wheelchair, for example, and I turn up to work tomorrow, um, I will need a ramp perhaps to access the building. And every day for the rest of my life, I will need that ramp to access the building. And once I'm in the building, everything is fine. Similarly, for somebody maybe who has a sight issue or, you know, another type of disorder where the symptoms or the manifestation of that disability is the same over time, then the need for certain reasonable accommodations, perhaps to access work, to stay in education, whatever it might be, remain the same. If I'm somebody who has migraine, for example... You know, I come to work one day and I'm absolutely fine. The next day I come to work, I may have a slight sensitivity to light. So I need to put a screen on my computer. You know, there may be light shining through the window and I need to go and lie in a darkened room for an hour. I might have Parkinson's disease, for example, which means that some days I'm not feeling as well as on others, even though, you know, the symptoms are generally the same. There can be improvements and there can be worsening of symptoms. I may not have slept well the night before, I may want to start work at 10am instead of 9am because I need to wait for my uh, medication to kick in. On another day I may be fine to get up and go to work at 9am. So it's those sort of issues I think that need to be considered um, when we're thinking of people living with chronic but fluctuating diseases.
1: That also requires a lot of understanding from, for example, an employer in that sense. I guess that's it is required to have a certain education for how to for how to approach uh, people with the which have different needs but are perfectly able to 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 work at the end of the day just requires uh, for example that some flexibility let's say in coming to work sometimes a couple of hours later because that's uh, just needed for the medication to have effect
0: absolutely and i think you know it's It is, as you say, having that flexibility and raising awareness of the issues. Um, Work is underway in those areas. There is a joint action on chronic diseases happening at the European level as we speak. This is a second joint action. But on this occasion, there's a work package included within that on employment and chronic diseases. And I think that's a really important step forward, because as I said earlier, this is not just about health. This is a socioeconomic issue, and it's really important that those aspects are included in any EU initiatives that are looking at healthcare.
2: And for the listeners, what does a joint action actually mean?
0: A joint action is basically um, an EU-funded project where players from different EU member states come together to work collaboratively. And the idea is that there would be recommendations arising from that could be applied in the different member states in europe so it's a way of bringing together expertise um, and sharing best practice and ensuring that we have recommendations and conclusions that can be applied in more than one country and i think that's an example of the added value of working at the european level
2: absolutely absolutely and uh could you tell us a little bit more about your you have a slogan empowering patient neurology groups and, and what does that empowerment really entail in practice?
0: Yeah so as I explained we're a slightly different type of patient organization than some of the others because we're not disease specific and because we're not working at the member state level in a specific disease area our role is not really in reaching out to individual patients um, and empowering them to maybe self-manage or in in terms of their own condition Our role is more about working with the patient groups that represent individual patients. And we put a lot of focus on trying to provide a platform for these groups to get their messages to key audiences. So, for example, we have an interest group at the European Parliament, which looks at policy issues. And really, that's about giving our members an opportunity to come and talk to policymakers about what matters most to them and to the patients that they represent we also run training initiatives for neurology advocates, which is around educating um, patient advocates to understand the policy and decision-making processes, to understand the research and development process, and to give them the tools to either be involved or to influence the way decisions are taken. Um, and also, we try to run pan-European awareness-raising campaigns, which, again, you know, by raising awareness more broadly allows the individual organizations and the individual disease areas to be more effective in what they are trying to do.
1: But Donna, uh, you're talking about your awareness campaign, and we know that, uh, indeed, awareness and advocacy are two of your four main strategic goals. Uh, we will look into the other two later. Would you be able to mention some of the uh, most important campaigns or most successful uh, initiatives that you've been doing in these areas and What have been um, some of the results you're most proud of?
0: Yeah, so when I started within EFNA back in 2011, um, there were a lot of advocacy activities ongoing with meetings in the European Parliament, meetings in the Commission, for example. Um, And when I looked at sort of the outcome of some of those meetings, I felt, you know, maybe we need to take a step back before we take a step forward because often it was the same group of policymakers in the room who were already, I suppose, interested and committed to the field. And so I felt we need to raise awareness more broadly before we can go back with our advocacy asks or our policy asks. And that's why we launched um, a campaign we called Together Under the Umbrella. And the aim of that campaign really was to get people thinking as neurology As a whole, um, instead of a set of fragmented um, diseases, because if you look at cancer, for example, you know, people think of cancer as cancer. Very often, you know, you don't hear people saying, well, I'm supporting breast cancer or I'm supporting prostate cancer or, you know, I'm very interested in whatever type of cancer it may be. Cancer is cancer. Neurology is slightly different. You know, people are very invested in Parkinson's and multiple sclerosis, in epilepsy and stroke, whatever it might be. And that sort of unification of the disease area doesn't tend to happen as easily. And so what we wanted to do with the Together Under the Umbrella campaign was to get people using the hashtag on Twitter or on any other type of social media um, under the umbrella, but also mentioning their own disease area and posting a picture of them standing under the umbrella, which was an attempt to capture attention. So we had Parkinson's under the umbrella, epilepsy under the umbrella, multiple sclerosis under the umbrella. And the whole point was trying to sort of build, I suppose, the community and get the community coming together. We had policymakers under the umbrella. We had our industry colleagues under the umbrella. We had health professionals under the umbrella. And I think really it was useful to sort of build goodwill amongst the community, but also to raise awareness of what we're talking about when we talk about neurology, because very often when you say neurology, People kind of think, oh, what does that mean? And when you start to list the diseases, they think, oh, yeah, you know, I know now.
1: But let me understand, when you say, when you talk about this together under the Umbrella campaign, was it a social media campaign? Uh, is that enough to um, to build a um, sense of community?
0: It was primarily a social media campaign from our end because we were trying to coordinate what was going on. But we also produced a toolkit and a set of branding materials, which we gave to our members and their members and other interested parties across Europe. But actually, in the end, it started to, to go worldwide. And our suggestions to them was that they would take the campaign and bring it offline. So we had a number of our members who would have umbrellas at their events and would post the pictures afterwards. We would have um, some of the companies having internal days where they would have umbrellas and would do photo shoots with their employees to try to raise awareness. So it was something that began as a sort of online campaign, but which we encouraged people to take and to use. And, And still, you know, even though we're not proactively pushing the campaign at the moment, We saw on the last World Brain Day, which was July 22nd, which is two years after the campaign started, that there were still some groups using the umbrellas, posting on social media, having events. And really, that's what we wanted, that we would create something that would almost take on a life of its own.
1: That's that's actually, that's beautiful. And uh, for how long did it go? It sounds like at least uh, more than one year or something like that.
0: Yeah, so we pushed it um, for about 12 months um, and then we pull it out of the bag as and when required. So on Brain Awareness Week, for example, on World Brain Day, if we're having an event where we want to create a photo opportunity, we will tend to sort of go back to it. So even though it's not something at the moment that we are, proactively pushing, it is something that we will keep um, and will use as and when required. Um, Thank you
1: for sharing this. Do you believe that you've uh, more or less covered uh, all the initiatives about uh, awareness and advocacy? Should we move to the other strategic goals or there is there anything else you would want to add in this area?
0: Um, so I think in terms of the advocacy piece, you know, raising awareness in advance is always helpful because if you are going to people to ask for change on a policy level, if they are aware of the impact and the burden and the numbers um, that you are representing, then I think that helps. And I think doing the Together Under the Umbrella campaign was a nice precursor to, I suppose, the advocacy activities that followed via our interest group of members of the European Parliament that began in 2015. Are you actually able to to track results
1: through um, your different organisations that you represent?
0: Yeah, so for us, I think tracking results is something that we're always interested in because you do want to know the impact of the projects or the activities that you engage in. At the moment, we are planning to launch a new strategic plan from 2020 to 2025. So our strategic plan will be coming to an end at the end of 2019. And we plan to spend next year actually doing a lot of reflection on the projects and activities that we've done to date, um, assessing what's worked well, what hasn't worked so well, and then using the results of that internal reflection to actually decide what direction we take in 2020 and beyond.
1: So far, we have been talking about activities of awareness and advocacy, but I know that part of your strategic plan is also the area of empowerment and engagement. Would you like to elaborate a bit on that as well?
0: Yes. So in terms of empowerment, what we're really talking about is training and capacity building activities for patient advocates and for patient organizations. And we have a pretty long track record in that domain. We started seven or eight years ago at the London School of Economics, where we ran courses over three days on health technology assessment. Uh, It's a confusing term. It's nothing to do with technology as such, but really it's the way that Policymakers and decision makers in individual countries assess whether new treatments are cost effective and whether they will be reimbursed for the patients who actually need them. The issue, I guess, is that resources and money is not finite. There are always budgets in these countries. And so every new treatment that comes to the market cannot be reimbursed and made available to patients. And it's really important for us in the neurology space to be part of those discussions because, as I mentioned earlier, 40% of the costs for neurological disorders, for brain disorders in general, are indirect. And often these indirect societal costs aren't factored into these calculations. And equally, the whole quality of life piece, which we've also spoken about earlier, can be very difficult to quantify in terms of numbers. So something may improve someone's quality of life hugely, but it may not translate in terms of uh, a cost-effectiveness benefit. And so we needed to upscale patient advocates to be part of that discussion, to sit at the table and to influence the decisions that were taken. Now, over the years, other parties like the European Patients Forum, for example, developed their own um, patients academy on therapeutic innovation, which included modules on health technology assessment. So we felt that we needed to focus more narrowly on the specific issues in the field of neurology, which I've just outlined and that led us to launching our own training initiatives for neurology advocates back in 2015. And since then, we've run a number of workshops at the pan-European level, but also we started to run workshops at the national level. And that's really important because people were coming to our workshops saying, well, this is really interesting, but I'm not sure how it applies in my country. And in every country across Europe, these calculations and these decisions are taken in a different way. So it was important for us to allow patients in the individual member states to understand how it happens in their country and how they can get involved in that process. The other benefit of our training initiatives is that you know we own the content. So it allows us to disseminate that more widely. So even though we may have 30 people in a room in a particular country, it allows that content to be shared. And so more and more people can use uh, the work that we're doing to help improve their Advocacy activities.
1: Have you been able to estimate the reach with your training? So, at least, what is the number of people that you actually engage in the training?
0: Yeah, so during our time of running the workshops at the London School of Economics, we had almost 300 patient advocates who came and attended the workshops. Since then, when we run our training initiatives every year, we would have in or around 100 people um, involved from across Europe and from across the different neurology disease areas. So it's quite a large number of people. But also, as I said, the reach is broader because the materials are then available afterwards on our website and the participants themselves are invited to take the materials and the learnings and to share them with their wider patient community. As I also mentioned earlier, next year is really going to be about analysing the impact of these types of activities. And we plan to go back to the countries where we have had events in the past and to run an additional event, but also to get a sense of what they've done with that knowledge in the intervening period. Has it actually made a difference? Has it helped them in their work? Where are the gaps and what do we need to do next?
1: Donna, you mentioned during our talk... Um... Uh, you talked about technology and you talked about patient uh, training. Would you maybe try to elaborate on how technology is actually uh, used or not used for recovering uh, disease and um, neurological disorders?
0: Yeah, so this is something that we've really only started um, to think about relatively recently. And I think we were pushed um, into thinking about it because the European Commission Has developed this digital health agenda for Europe. And I think for us, it's important that we try to engage with those conversations. Um, It's very hard to talk about health um, and public health at a European level because it's really the competence of the member states. So it's the countries themselves that take a lot of the decisions. But in areas like employment, in areas like um, digital um, technologies, for example, there is more scope to have discussions at the European level. And so we need to try and bring the health aspect into all of these discussions that are happening. So very recently, we ran a survey of young people living with neurological disorders across Europe, so from the ages of 18 to 35. And within that, there was a question on whether or not those young people use new technologies to help them to manage and treat their conditions. And I guess we thought that there would be quite a high level of young people using these technologies, but we were really surprised by the results, which showed that the level of those using these technologies was very, very low. Um, For those who had used technology in the past, but no longer used it, many said it was because it was ineffective or they didn't think it was working. And when we asked those who did use technologies, what kind of technologies are you using? A lot of them just mentioned social media, web pages and so on. So really not using the type of medical devices or these digital applications that we, I suppose, think of when we, we think of digital health. And so I think there is a lot of work to be done in terms of getting um, people to understand that these technologies can be effective, um, these technologies can be used, and these technologies are there and can be of real added value when added to a treatment regimen. And we are having a workshop with those young patients um, in, o- in November, sorry, where we will try to tease out some of these issues in terms of what they feel about digital health, what would be of most use to them. And how can we work together to ensure that, you know, some of these things which can add value to them actually get into their hands and start to be used on a day to day basis?
1: So you try to you try to understand whether there was resistance, resistance from the patients in using the technology or actually if it was the technology was just not available
0: Yeah, I mean, we haven't really teased that out in the survey. Um, I think that's something that we will need to talk to those young people about when we've got the group together in November um, and really get a sense of, is it that the technology is not available, you don't know about it, or is it that you're using it and you don't think it works? Or is it that you have privacy concerns, ethical concerns around the use of big data, which is something that comes up quite a lot from patient groups? You know, there's a a real, I suppose, fear that by using these sort of digital technologies, by applying artificial intelligence to healthcare, that suddenly, you know, health records become public knowledge and that, you know, people are at risk of maybe losing their job, losing their health insurance, being stigmatized um, in wider society and so on. Thank you so much for sharing this
1: information, especially because both Kim and I work in the technology area. So this is a very um, uh, important topic that we always want to touch.
2: Great. So a lot of fantastic work being done by EFNA. And we're reaching the time where we have to round off, Donna. So one thing we like to ask is, is what type of key uh, take-home message would you give to each of the groups that you're communicating to and, and we can take them in turn because you have many but uh, you can keep it very brief just you know the one-line take-home message what would it be for the policymakers first?
0: I think the take-home message for policymakers is the fact that one in three of their constituents will have a brain disorder during their lifetime and unless something is done now, that is going to grow and it is going to be completely unsustainable in terms of healthcare systems across Europe. So I think the message for the policymakers is that you need to talk to patients now about what can be done to actually address this growing burden and the growing impact that this is going to have.
2: Good. And now the medical and clinical community.
0: I think here it's really about talking to patients to ensure that patients have a voice, number one, in their treatment and management, but also in setting priorities for the research that's going to happen.
2: Great. And the third group would be the scientists and the researchers.
0: Yeah, again, I think it's a similar message that the scientists and the researchers need to be speaking more to patient advocates about what the priorities are for them. I mean, we're realistic in that we know that a cure is probably not going to be developed for many of these disorders uh, in the immediate future. But really, what we want to see and what we want to feel is that the scientific community is working in the direction of uh, patient advocates and is working to improve our quality of life by developing potentially new treatments that are going to to help
2: very good and then we have the 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 industry as well what about those guys
0: So for the industry, again, I think it's a real plea to them to continue their investment in the neuroscience space because it's very difficult. I mean, we know that there is a higher failure rate in the field of neuroscience. We know the brain is a more complex organ. We know it takes longer for industry to get their drugs to the market. And so it may mean that the time to recoup their costs is much less. And so I think what we want... uh, for industry is to continue to work in the space, but also to work with us as partners to ensure that what matters most to patients is incorporated into their clinical trial. And also that we can work together to talk to the regulators, to talk to the payers, to talk to the policymakers, to maybe develop new and more innovative ways um, to get these products to market and to get them to the patients at a price that they can afford.
2: Great. And now finally, the patients and the families.
0: I think for the patients and families, really what I would say is that, you know, we need to come together as a united community. We need to think beyond our own specific disease areas. Um, and we need to try and push uh, together for brain and brain health to be part of the political agenda. Because once we've got brain up there, then we can fight amongst ourselves as to, to who gets the uh, bulk of the resources. But for now, I think the main focus needs to be on convincing all of the players, that brain is where it's at um, and brain is where the focus should be.
2: Incredible, Donna. Thanks for those messages. So Donna painted a very good picture for us about the burden of neurological disease, also pointing out that it's a very challenging disease because it is very different from in a physical disease that is easily seen. A lot of the neurological diseases are chronic as well. and And so there's a lot of stigma and issues attached to that which is why we, we require all this awareness building and advocacy and all the great things that EFNA are doing. So, Donna, we want to thank you so much for coming on today and uh, talking to us. Please keep up the good work. It's uh, great work that you're doing at uh, EFNA.
0: Thanks for having us. It's been a, a pleasure to talk to you and uh, we look forward to hearing the series when it's launched. Thank you so much, Donna. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you.